everyone. Welcome to worship today. I invite us all now to prepare our hearts and minds to worship God as we listen to the prelude. Would you please join me in the responsive call to worship? God has given us holy hands. Hands to hold a hurt child, to embrace a lonely friend, to care for one who is ill. Hands to till the soil and make a bed. God has given us holy hands. Let us worship God in what we say and in what we do.
please be seated. We come to the sanctuary with words of praise and thanksgiving in our hearts as we prepare to worship God. How blessed we are to celebrate the Sabbath in this time and this place, refreshing our spirits that are weary from labor and renewing our bodies for labors still to come. Please be in a spirit of prayer with me. Hear our spoken prayers, holy God, as we ask for your presence in us and among us this morning. Open our eyes to see the beauty around us, our ears to hear the words and music, and our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit, so we will know with certainty that you are with us. Hold us close, gracious God, as we now enter into a time of silent, unspoken prayers. Please join me now in the prayer of preparation and confession printed in the bulletin. Merciful God, you call us to your table of grace to enjoy your presence, to experience your healing, to be made one with your people of every time and place. But we dare not come to the table with dirty hands and sin-stained hearts. Only your forgiveness can make us clean within. We confess we have edged you to the fringes of our lives as we have become occupied with countless other urgent matters. We confess we have fooled ourselves into believing we are too busy to pray and too exhausted to serve. We have devised clever justifications for ignoring the poor and avoiding those in despair. Forgive us, dear Lord, and help us do better. Help us order our days and our deeds according to your will. Open our hearts to the needs of those who cannot return our favors. Grant us pardon and comfort us with the assurance of your spirit. Then shall we be free to celebrate your feast of love with the saints of this and every time and place. Amen. We have come here to lay our burdens at the feet of our merciful God, who receives all that is given to him and in return gives us the grace of mercy. All we must do is accept God's grace and mercy. There are no strings or conditions. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. May we go forth in peace. Amen. I invite you out all now to stand as you're able and to greet one another. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today. And even if I can't see you online... To welcome as well folks who are watching our worship service online on, from our website or from Facebook Live. For the rest of us here today, hearty welcome to all of you. And I want to invite those who are sitting in the center of the aisles to take out the pew pads that are there and a pen or pencil and write down your name and any contact information you'd like to leave and then pass those pads down the aisles. And, and that way we can uh, be in touch, especially if you're a visitor. We'd love to be in touch with you if give you any information you might like. We sometimes will receive prayer requests, all sorts of other things from emails that we receive from our visitors and our members, which reminds me that we also have prayer cards in the pews, as well as out in the courtyard and down by the street where you can leave, write down prayer requests, and we'll be in prayer with you and for you. There are some announcements here in the bulletin. Uh, If you open to the colored page here that's in the bulletin next Sunday, is Piedmont Church Homecoming. That is a time where we come to the uh, worship, well, the worship of your choice, but after the second worship service, the 1030 service, we'll go across the street to Piedmont Park and have a celebration and food and music and fellowship. 
And uh, I want to invite you and remind you to come dressed casually next week to the service if you want to go across and join us for the, uh, the festivities as well. The choir will be starting its choir year next Sunday at the second service. And Dr. McNabb will be starting a new sermon series on the fullness of time. Also, to remind or to let you know that on September 29th, we're going to have a special presentation and a film that was uh, created by our own Michael Barber, our communications director, about uh, a time that uh, he and Bill McNabb and Scott Kale, some other folks from our church, spent recently in Malawi in Africa with our sister church in the long way and doing other things. And we're going to have a special screening of that film and African-themed music on September the 29th. And then on September 14th, I invite you to participate, if you haven't before, uh, or if you have, to participate again in the Hope Cafe ministry that is down at City Team Ministries in downtown Oakland, where we, uh, those of us from the church and other folks will come and volunteer and, and be waiters and waitresses and uh, welcome homeless pe- people to a, a, a menu of food where they select what they want to receive for dinner that night and are served. It's just a small token and recognition of the humanity of people who are so often dehumanized in our own consciousness. It's a way to open them up to the Spirit of God and open ourselves as well. So speaking of service, I want to invite Scott Willis forward now and to to share a little bit about an important mission project that we are continuing in, and he has some good news for us. Good morning. My name is Scott Willis. I'm uh, here today representing the Refugee Task Force, and I have good news. After nine months of sorting out a different partner to do the work with, uh, we've got the partner settled, and we have a new family that's committed to us that will be arriving September 19th. And so we're starting to gear up and get ourselves ready for them. Uh, the the uh, Razleys are from Kandahar, Afghanistan. It's a family of seven. There's a mom, a dad, and five kids ages 14 through five. And uh, he has a brother here in, who lives in Oakland. And uh, apparently he has skills as a mechanic and is here on a special interest visa Uh, because he helped repair uh, Humvee Jeeps for uh, U.S. military while he was there. So he has a good set of skills to get a job. And a brother, he's trying to get him a job. Uh, So we're we're gearing up. We've got uh, a set of committees lined up that have all got different jobs, and some of you might already be on one of those committees. Uh, We are, though, uh, I'm going to highlight three areas that we could use assistance and ask that you think about it. And... Um, maybe use your holy hands, as we saw in the start of the service today, to join and do some work. Uh, the first one is we're uh, looking for drivers. Uh, there's going to be a, a lot of need to move people around to different things. We've got a transportation lead who can coordinate it, but we need people that can get in a car and give a couple hours to do that. And so what we're looking for is maybe once every couple of weeks, if we could organize with you a day, and say Tuesday every other week, you're going to be available to drive, and if you get a call, you drive. If you don't, then you don't. Um, So drivers is one. Another one that we know we're going to have a need for is um, English as a second language tutors. Uh, The word that we're getting is they don't speak English, and so there will be a, a need to get the tutors set up. We're going to try and have four, maybe a male for the dad, and then a female for the mother, and then divide the kids into two different clumps and have women deal with one of, either one of those two clumps. And so we're looking for people that could give, that's about an hour a week, and you'd schedule it and have a, so, as much of a fixed schedule as they schedule will allow, and you'd go out and you'd t- tutor them and uh, try and bring them along. And then the third thing that we're looking for is uh, somebody or a couple of people to support grocery shopping. Um, they come from a world where they don't have Safeways and Luckies. And so we'd like to have a couple of women that could uh, take the family, 
one to work specifically with the mother and help her understand supermarkets and groceries and checkouts with credit cards, and then another one to sort of deal with the kids so the mother can really focus on the job at hand. Um, and so uh, that's what we're looking for right now. And if any of you are in, uh, interested, please uh, reach out to me or other people through on the Refugee Task Force. Um, but the question, you might ask the question, why to get involved? Don, uh, Don mentioned a volunteer opportunity earlier. The reason I would give you for why for, for this opportunity is all those jobs that I just described to you have the potential for you to see growth in this family. So a mother that's only shopped in bazaars, being able to go into a grocery outlet the first time will be overwhelming. But the second time, she'll be more with it. By the third time, she might have a list. By the fourth time, she's going to have one of the kids pushing the cart. And you'll be part of that journey. ESL is obviously the same way, where you could work with them for two or three months and see a person that doesn't know how to say hi or doesn't know how to say anything about it. What, what's, what do you call a backpack? Um, you'll see those kids grow and take that journey. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it. How can I move these people forward and, and make them better at the climbing on to the first step of the American journey? Thank you. telling uh, Steve Main after first service how appropriate the words of that uh, song are to what I'm about to be talking about in my uh, sermon in the scripture today, especially this. So I don't want you to have to spend time reading those words right now, but I do want to call your attention to the last stanza. Still in our midst, this Lord of shop and marketplace prays through our work of body, mind, and strength and calls us still to labor for the common good, led by his love that knows no breadth or length. If you don't get anything out of my sermon other than I'm reiterating that point today, then it's been a good labor that we've been engaged in here today. That really sums up 
what I'm about to be talking about. So let's get started by turning to the words that St. Paul writes in his letter to the Romans from the 12th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for God's word to you today. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world this day as best we can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So happy Labor Day, everybody. Yeah, exactly. I heard one person respond, happy Labor Day. How about what do you say in response to something like that? Happy Labor Day. How many of you have ever said Happy Labor Day before in your life? Raise your hand. I doubt it, right, because it's not something we say that often, because usually we think of Labor Day, we think of it at all, it's just sort of the last lazy day of summer, right? And then it's another day off work tomorrow, and then we get back to the grind on the next day. But did you ever wonder where the idea of Labor Day comes from in the first place? Well, I'm going to tell you goes back to the uh, 19th century to the beginnings of the organized labor movement in the United States, and particularly to September the 5th, 1882. So it was on that day in New York City that the Central Labor Union had a march from City Hall in New York City to Reservoir Park in Union Square, and at the park they had a massive uh, picnic with all sorts of people joining together and a concert. And then there were a series of speeches by leaders talking about the importance of establishing the eight-hour workday. Because back at the time, the average work week for a full-time manufacturing employee was 100 hours. That works out to about 14 hours per day, seven days a week. Imagine working from 7 a.m., to 9 p.m. every day. Doesn't leave a lot of time for anything else, does it? Certainly not for a Sabbath rest. So in 1894, Congress passed legislation creating Labor Day to be celebrated on the first Sunday in September to honor the dignity and value of paid labor. Now that was in uh, 1894 wasn't until 48 years later, in 1940, that the eight-hour workday and the 40-hour work week that we all take for granted actually became what we know today. And that points to the origins, at least, of some of our mixed feelings that we have about work and about labor, especially paid work and paid labor. So I was thinking of a song that might describe some of our feelings towards work. And I I recalled a very colorful song from the 1970s by a guy named Johnny Paycheck. And he, he wrote a song and sang it with gusto. It went like this. You can take this job and... Okay, some of you know the words. I was not going to use that word. I was going to say deposit it. But 
A few years ago, there was a survey done that showed that 84% of American workers said that they were going to or wanted to look for a new job within the next 12 months. Now, that number, of course, may include some people who'd rather not be working at all anyway, or it could include some people who just don't happen to like the particular employment they're in right now or their job, even if they like the sort of general thing that they do. But even so, if the survey is at all representative, that means that for the majority of American workers, Labor Day is not necessarily a time to revel in the dignity of work. It's a last gasp to get away from it. Now, of course, all of us you know, want to escape things sometimes. It's not a bad thing at all to want to escape from from work or toil or anything else. I mean, the Bible even says that every seventh day we need to take a rest. We use the word Sabbath, which comes from from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which literally means stop. Stop. And that's great. God says we need to stop. Jesus says, come unto me all who labor. I will give you rest. And as Annie Lamott writes, almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. It's pretty good too. But what does the Bible have to say to us? What does the Bible have to teach to us about the dignity and value of labor, of work itself? Well, actually, quite a lot. It starts in the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, where God gets busy with the work of creation. Right? God says, let there be light, and there is light. God separates the light from the darkness. God tames the primordial waters of, the, of chaos to bring forth land and, and vegetation and animals of all sorts. And, and all this work culminates in the creation of us, human beings, you and me. God's work culminates in what we might call the finest work product that God ever did. And we are not just God's work product, we are produced as workers to be apprentices to God, to work with God. And so God gives us a job right off the bat. Right in Genesis chapter 2, God gives us dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and all the wild animals of the earth. Well, that's a big deal. We talk about, you know, finding meaningful employment. Our job, our calling, our vocation is to be co-creators and stewards of everything that God makes. Or at least that was the plan. Because then something kind of goes out of whack. In Christian theology, we call it the fall. The fall. Adam and Eve fall into the temptation and into the reality of sin, and they take the rest of us down with them, and God punishes them and all of their descendants And part of the punishment involves kicking them out of the Garden of Eden and uh, putting a curse onto every other bit of earth itself. God says to the first humans, through painful toil you will eat food from the earth all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And by the sweat of your brow, you will work the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. That doesn't sound so great, does it? In other words, what had been a blessing from the beginning to participate with God in shaping all of creation, shaping the earth, has now turned into a sentence of hard labor. Historian Roger Hill writes this, The 
cultural norm placing a positive moral value on doing a good job because work has intrinsic value of its own was a relatively recent development in human history. Work, for much of the history of the human race, has been hard and degrading. The Hebrew belief system viewed work as a curse devised by God explicitly to punish the disobedience and ingratitude of Adam and Eve. Numerous scriptures from the Old Testament, in fact, supported work, not from the stance that there was any joy in it, but only from the premise that it was necessary to prevent poverty and destitution. And that way of looking at work isn't just ancient history. It's a fascinating book that was written a few years ago by a sociologist named Barbara Ehrenreich called Nickel and Dimed, and she describes what it was like for her to live for a whole year on minimum wage. And she lived in the cheapest housing she could find, and she worked as a waitress and a maid and a nursing home maid and as somebody who sold things on the street corner. And she found that all this exhausting, back-breaking work didn't give her a great sense of what you might call occupational satisfaction. Often enough, one job wasn't enough for her to avoid homelessness. And that might give you a sense of why for many people in this world, especially those on the lower rungs of society, how those folks can see work itself as kind of the result of a curse. And you don't have to be a minimum wage worker to get that sense, too. Because many of us, by no means all of us, but for many of us, the value of work boils down essentially to either making enough money to live or finding a way to appear successful in the eyes of other people. As I say, that's not everybody doesn't fall into that category. I actually love my job, always have. But for a lot of people, that's how they see work. And I ask you, is that any way to live? And the problem is, as much as I love my job in the church, over the centuries, the Christian church has kind of played right into the idea of work as a curse. Just think of all the peasants and slaves and workers and everybody else who's been taught by the church over the centuries that, that this earthly life is little more than a veil of tears to be endured until you can escape it by getting away from this earth and into a place called heaven where you don't work. Or the church has tended to teach that, you know, really the only kind of work that really matters in life is work that is done in or for or by the church itself. It's a sacred vocation that counts, like being a minister or something, but not secular labor. But here's the thing. Even if the church has played into that idea for centuries, whether it did it intentionally or not, that is a total misunderstanding of what the Bible has to tell us about the dignity and the value of labor and of work of so many different kinds of work. Yes, it can be tedious and pointless and dreary and oppressive. We all know that. We've all experienced that, whether you love your job or not. Work can get you down. But it can also be, and it should be, so much more than that. In the middle of the Second World War, the whole idea of what it meant to work for a living underwent a huge, profound change, right? What people had assumed before the whole world seemingly went to war about work was formed by earlier attitudes and then uh, in the Depression when people were losing their jobs and all these kinds of things. And then in the war, 
Apparently, everybody worked together for a common purpose. Even if it was hard, there was a sense of meaning and purpose to what we were doing. And so in that context, the the British detective story writer um, uh, Dorothy Sayers, she wrote an amazing essay that I encourage anyone to read. It's online. It's about four or five pages long. It's in some books, uh, collected editions of her essays as well. Dorothy Sayers, she wrote this essay called Why Work in the Context of the Second World War. And in it, she does an amazing thing. She tries to reclaim the idea of work, of labor, of paid work and paid labor. Reclaim the idea of what God intends for it from the beginning rather than what it has become in the eyes of mankind. And she defines work as this. From a Christian perspective, work is a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself. She goes on to write this. Made in God's image, the human being should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. For the sake of doing well thing that is well worth doing. So work is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he or she finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he or she offers themselves to God. That's saying a lot. And it's, and it's, basically saying the same thing as what Paul is writing in his letter to the Romans about work and labor and your purpose in life, what God has made you to do. Paul says that God has given each one of you, each one of us, gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, in Greek, the word gifts is charisma. Charisma which means that no matter what you have thought the whole of your life, I can promise you that every single one of you has charisma. The Bible tells you so. Don't let anybody tell you anything different. Paul says that we are all gifted. Some of us as leaders, some as teachers, some as prophets, some as transmitters of wisdom, some as generous stewards, some as ministers, some as caregivers, some as skilled craftspeople, and the list goes on and on and on, especially if when, you, when you don't just look at Romans, but you look at 1 Corinthians and, and 2 Thessalonians and other places where Paul is writing about the various gifts that people are given for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. That doesn't just mean in church. It means wherever you are in life. We are all given gifts by God. And it's important to note that ministry is only one of the spiritual gifts that God gives. And it's not even at the top of the list. And that's why the word layperson, which pretty much describes most of the people watching online and in this room, that's kind of why the word layperson is problematic. Episcopal priest Frank Wade writes that the word lay is often used in church to demean people who aren't ordained ministers. And he's right. It happens. Just, you know, it's not just the church, as I said. Just think about how we use the word lay all the time. If someone is a lay electrician, it might be something that you would allow them to, you know, change a light bulb, but you don't want them anywhere near the high voltage. If a person is labeled a lay plumber, you might, you know, let them clean out the toilet or something like that, but you don't want them anywhere near getting involved in the plumbing in the whole house or in the whole neighborhood. Because usually being a lay person means you're an amateur. 
So when we ask a doctor to express her diagnosis in terms a layperson can understand, we're acknowledging that when it comes to medicine, the rest of us are pretty much idiots. But that is not what the word lay means at all. Doesn't mean amateur. Lay comes from a Greek word, laos, or laos, which means people. Just means people. All of us are laos. We are all people. That's who we are. The people of God who are called to use whatever gifts we've been given to do the work of God. And then Paul calls us transformed as followers of Jesus. And so it follows that because we've been transformed, we are called to be transformers too. Now, in electrical engineering, a transformer transfers energy from one circuit to another, often involving a change in voltage, current, phase, Don't get me started because I don't know anything about electricity myself. So I'm constantly thanking God for electricians. Anyway, the same is true for you and me. We are made and gifted to be transformers for God. Wherever we work, whatever we do, whether or not we get paid for it, it doesn't matter. We are called to transfer God's energy to the world. A guy named Desmond Grant found a way to use his God-given gifts by selling cleaning products. Doesn't sound all that glamorous, but it is necessary when you think about it. And as he puts it, people are dirty, 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 dirty. You can walk into any kind of store and see Dirt all over the place. I was in a flower shop this morning. Boy, there were stains all over the carpets, their tile floors, their windows, mold on the stainless steel around the windows. I'm a clean person myself, and I enjoyed cleaning that place. You can hear the joy in what he's saying. You can hear the passion he has about selling cleaning products that help people. And that's how God created all of us to be, to find and to get caught up in the particular kind of work that suits our gifts. But you know, as great as that sounds, it's only part of what, of what gives labor, especially paid labor, its core dignity and value. Because the truth is that the work God calls you to in life isn't just what you like to do. The the job that God calls you and me to do is also linked to God's own creative labor of love and mercy and reconciliation and salvation. So I put a quote on the cover of the bulletin, which is kind of long. I've used it before. It's from Frederick Buechner. You can uh, read it later. Because I'm not going to go through the whole thing right now, but it's well worth reading and pondering, just like that essay I told you about before. Think about what he says, but it boils down to this. What he writes is that your vocation or your calling in life is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Your vocation in life is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Now, of course, it's never going to be exactly clear the first time you think about something, you know, how it does those two things. There's a spectrum, right? There are jobs that sort of are more meeting your giftedness, and there are jobs that are sort of more meeting the world's needs. The point is to think about it to ponder it. What is it that you're doing that is utilizing your gifts and serving a higher purpose? So in that sense, almost any any kind of work, any kind of job can fit the bill. 
as long as your own joys and gifts are connected to meeting human needs. So when I say that, I have to be very clear that uh, that doesn't mean that meeting any perceived need or hunger that some human being tells you that they have is going to cut it, right? I mean, we want to rule out things like dealing drugs or human trafficking or being a terrorist as jobs that are sanctified by God. You get the picture. The point is this. Work that has value, whether it's sweeping a street or holding on to a baby because you're, you're a mom or a dad or a child care worker or preaching a sermon, whatever it is, work that has value is not just about making money or propping up your self-esteem in the eyes of others. It's being able to experience the joy of using your gifts to help other people and to honor God. There's an old story of a guy who approaches three bricklayers one day, and he goes up to the first bricklayer and he says, Hey, what are you doing? And the bricklayer, in kind of an annoyed voice, says, Well, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm laying bricks. And so he walks over to the second bricklayer and he asks him, what are you doing? And the guy says, oh, I'm making a living. And then the guy walks over to the third bricklayer and he asks him the same question, what are you doing? And the man looks up at him and he smiles and he says, I'm building a cathedral. In her essay, Why Work?, Dorothy Sayers wrote, Work is not primarily a thing one does to live. It is the thing one lives to do. So on this Labor Day weekend, I encourage you to think about what it is that you do that makes life worth living. Not necessarily just what you might do to make a living. What is it that you do that makes your life and other people's lives worth living. And remember that you are one of God's transformers. That's what is good and acceptable and perfect about you. Paul says that he means it. Now, of course, nobody's always going to feel or be good and acceptable and perfect all the time. But when you use your gifts to serve others, however you do it, you are working with God. You're doing what you were created to do. You're being who you were made to be. A, a circuit for divine power that changes, saves, and creates the world. In Jesus' name.
Brothers and sisters, if you're going to go out there and work with God, you need to get fed by God too. And so that's what this table is all about. It is a the Lord's table, we call it. It's a place where we are fed the body and blood of Jesus Christ symbolically, but not just to live it in our heads, but to let our bodies be transformed to go out and do the work that God calls us to do, to use our gifts to serve God and God's people. This is the Lord's table. We are told in the Bible that people will gather from east and west and north and south to sit at table in the kingdom of God. So no no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from or where you think you're going in life, you are invited to come to this table and share in the feast that's been prepared. Let's join together now in the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Let us pray. Therefore, with the entire company of angels and saints in heaven and on earth, we do worship and glorify you, God most holy, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your splendor. All glory be to you, O Lord most high. And Lord most high, come to us now in this low place, this everyday ordinary place amongst us, everyday ordinary people. Bring to us the spiritual gifts and the food and drink that we need in order to meet and to know the presence of Jesus Christ here, to be transformed in order to be transformers, to bring food and mercy and grace and strength to this world and to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And hear now the words of institution of our Lord's Supper. On the night of his betrayal and arrest, our Lord was at table with his disciples. And as they were there, he took the bread that was before them and he blessed it. And he broke it. As I ministering in his name, do the same. And he gave it to them. And he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of this, do it remembering me. The same way he took the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is sealed in my blood, shed for all of you for the forgiveness of sin. Whenever you drink of this, do it remembering me. And so whenever we eat from this loaf together in God's house, with God's people wherever we are and with brothers and sisters throughout time and all over this world. We are professing our faith in the life and death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus and looking forward to that day that is coming and that is indeed in some ways already here when all of God's children can come to one table and share in the feast that's been prepared. Let us join our voices together and pray the prayer our Lord has taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We'll be served the elements of communion by intinction. That means that there will be some of us standing in front of the sanctuary with the elements of communion. You'll come down the center aisle, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and return to the pew by the side aisle. If you would prefer, for whatever reason, to remain seated, just let one of the ushers know, and we'll serve you where you you are seated. So now come, now for all is made ready, the gifts of God for the people of God. And now as we do each time, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here on a Sunday morning. It's my privilege to invite all of us, all of you, to either read or read.
recite the words of the 23rd Psalm. They are written in the bulletin. They're also written on the beautiful stained glass window in the back of the sanctuary. And those of you online, please join us as well as you're able. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Steve May knows really well that that is my favorite hymn, and it was written, the words to that hymn, God of Grace and God of Glory, by Harry Emerson Fosdick, the first pastor of Riverside Church in New York City, and he wrote those words on the occasion of the dedication of that church in Manhattan, and I happened to be at that church one week ago today, so those words really mean something to me, and I hope to you on this Sunday morning. But whatever word, whatever sight, whatever sound, whatever taste, whatever feeling you have experienced here today in this sanctuary that gives you a sense of God's power, God's peace, God's mercy and forgiveness for you, take it with you. Go out of this place, live your life, do the work you're called to do. Be a transformer for God, bringing light and life to this world. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be and abide with each and every one of you, both now and forevermore. Amen.